So I'd like to thank y'all for stopping by to have a cigar with Uncle Maduro. <laughs> and let me tell y'all, before we get started, y'all always know like tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on a Southern Classic Cigar, private label, Turo. Man, let me tell you something. This is show is a good little stick. Now, before I give y'all my little opinion and background on this thing, first, I'd like to tell y'all what these folks say about this here stick. <clears throat> Excuse me there. Now, this stick here is kind of a special stick because in our here local cigar spot, Roz here, the gentleman who brand this cigar, he's a close friend of the cigar spot. I'm going to tell you, his name is Eloy. Now, I haven't met Eloy personally, but all the guys there speak of Eloy very highly. And he have his own line. I think it's Kube, uh, Kube or something like that. But y'all go to my website, and on my website is a link to all his great cigars. Now, this here Southern Classic was my first time picking this here stick up, as long as he had his cigars in the spot. Now, I've had the Cubana, which I really enjoyed that cigar there. But this Southern Classic, it was like on the bottom, and every time I've been going in there, I ain't been seeing this one here. Because the other cigar sits there up, up on top, the Kubu, the Cubana, Kube, Cubana, I think those are names. Y'all got to forgive me, I got Louisiana education now. Those cigars sits up at top when you walk in the garage. But I found this one here on the bottom. And I picked it up because I was interested in something different uh, from his line of cigars. And I really, really enjoyed this cigar here. But before I tell y'all what I think about it again, let me tell y'all what these folks here say about this here stick, okay? They say the Southern Classic Cigar Private Label Turo. Man, let me tell you. It's a dark cocoa, firmly packed, oily, slightly toothy wrapper with minimum veins. Tight, invisible seams, triple cap, a pugin, sweet cocoa, and menu aroma. Boy, that Louisiana education. First light reveals a very tight draw needing correction, after which showed a medium to full body of sweet wood and grassy notes, with a building pepper on the long finish. The first third burns very quickly, but well. Keeping the big body, dropping a bit of the grassiness and adding a bit of sweetness, caramel, and a bit of grit to the smoke. Ending at about 50 minutes, the second half burned much slower. Bringing a big strength kick, matching the body and medium to full. No shift to heavy earth and just a tooth touch of caramel coming through. While the finish dropped the pepper and got very smooth. Man, let me tell you, I like the way these folks make things stand. Sound just so pretty. <laughs> but look here, tell you what I think about this stick here. To me, it was a nice, smooth stick. Now, y'all know, like I tell y'all before, I can kind of taste those notes in my lips when I first hit. I can tell if a cigar is going to be a good cigar. And this here, to my surprise, and I say to my surprise, because I think this cigar here was at the lower price point of his cigars. And this cigar here was around about 10 you know, $9, $10, somewhere from that price point. And it was a surprisingly good cigar. Actually, I bought a few more before I left the cigar spot to bring home with me so I can smoke a little later on. But this is a good stick. Y'all ever get a chance, okay? Go to your local cigar spot for like I ever tell, always tell y'all. Y'all can buy online, get your little discount, build up a humidor, that's fine. But support your local cigar spot. Now, see if they got this Southern Classic cigar. And check out his other lines. I think they're Kube line. Y'all take a look at my website site because I got a link to Eloy's, uh, his website where y'all can see all his little cigar selections. He's got some good cigars. Very good sticks here. And I was really, really enjoying this Southern Classic here. All right? Now, like I say, shop y'all shop locally. Now, 
we got a little talk. Now, I know it's been a while since I, since I dropped a little pie talk on y'all. You know, it's been, uh, been working from home. This little COVID thing is lingering on. It's lingering on like a bad marriage that people just don't want to get divorced from. Just linger on, linger on. Not that I know any much thing about that. But let me tell you, I've been saying to myself, about time to drop another little pie talk. And interesting enough, I was watching this show on TV called Tenet. You know, it's a very interesting Everything much a show about this black guy. He's not like a James Bond or anything like that. But, you know, he is one of them off-the-grid secret service, secret service people who don't have an identity. But it's very interesting. It started out with they were doing these experiments in Africa. And that what really got me thinking about this little part talk that I'm going to do here. But then it talks about uh, the future, how people can live in the future and change the past. I don't know, man. It was some old crazy. Y'all check that show. It's called Tenet. But the show got me thinking about the experiments that folks do in Africa. Let me tell y'all something now. I know a lot of folks might not want to hear this here, but Africa has always, African and black folks has always been one of the folks that these pharmaceutical folks who they experiment on. When they can't get trials done here in the United States or in other countries because of the laws, there's people in these other countries here, besides the United States and Europe and England or some of the other places, Africa don't have the tight FDA or whatever the kind of laws is to protect their folks. So you get these pharmaceutical companies, they go to Africa and they do whatever pretty much they want to do. And see, this Bill Gates Foundation, I found out about this thing here too. But it just marvels me all through history. Africans, Africa has been a great, uh, uh, a great uh, spot for these companies to experiment with people for. Because nobody cares. I'm telling y'all, nobody cares nothing about no black folks. And then the black folks who are in charge in some of these countries in Africa, only thing they care about is getting their pockets filled. They don't care what goes on with their people. So I was doing a little research, right? Now I'm telling y'all, things are changing now. See, these pharmaceutical companies used to do all the research over in Africa and stuff like that, but see, it's changing. See, they tried to do it in, in, in India, but see, the Indian government put a stop to that. But see, they haven't put a stop to it in Africa. But before I get deep all into my little rant, y'all know how I am, because right now, I know I don't make about, about no sense right now. I know that. But first, we're going to get off into a little talk here, right? I'm going to present y'all with something here. I want y'all to take a listen to it. And after y'all listen to this, then I'm going to come back. I'm not going to say too much because I want y'all to listen to this thing a couple more times, get a little more information. But I was just thinking when I watched that show, Tenet, about it just dawned on me that all through history, even even Tuskegee uh, experiment, you know, where they, end, where they uh, experiment, ejected black men with syphilis, right? And when they caught the syphilis, they had the cure for them, but they still didn't give them the cure just to watch them like lab rats. This is what goes on Africa today. Africa, I, I would say, is the guinea pig of the world. And that's and that's for sure. No lot of folks don't want to hear that, but Africa is a guinea pig. Because nobody don't give, give a care about no black folks, especially over there in Africa. Because let me tell you something. The only way you get respect out of people is when you can defend yourself. And when you're a country where ain't got no guns and they got no bombs and they got no nuclear threats, you can't defend yourself. So people just run rock shot over you. That's why in America, it's very important that we keep our Second Amendment rights, that we keep our rights to bear arms. Now, I'm not telling folks out there do anything. I'm just saying that Africa is a prime example 
of a country, of a continent, of people that don't have no weaponry, nothing to fight back, no fish to make love, but they have all the natural resources and they have disposable people. And that's how the world look at Africa. Outside of it, we look at Africa as a place with a lot of natural resources, but the people are disposable in backwoods. You see what I'm saying? And pharmaceutical companies, man, they have came in and they run in roughshod in Africa. And the same experiments they're doing over there, I'm telling y'all, they're going to start doing over here too. The more rice container with people. But I'm going to get off into my little rant right now. Right now, I want y'all to listen to the little thing here, and then we'll come back and say a little, little talk, you know, on the flip side. Now, again, I know it might not seem like I'm uh, making sense right now, but it's, but I think this little talk here will wrap everything up for y'all, and then I'm going to come back. Okay, I'm going to smoke on my Southern Classic, and I'm going to come back and talk to y'all on the flip side. All right? All right now. Medical experimentation in Africa. African countries have been sites for clinical trials by large pharmaceutical companies, raising human rights concerns. Incidents of unethical experimentation, clinical trials lacking properly informed consent, and forced medical procedures have been claimed and prosecuted. The Pfizer drug Troven was used in a clinical trial in Kano, Nigeria. The trial compared the new antibiotic, Troven, against the best treatment available at the time, intravenous ceftriaxone. Eleven children died in the trial, five after taking Troven and six after taking an older antibiotic used for comparison in the clinical trial. Others suffered blindness, deafness, and brain damage, the cause of which is difficult to determine because these disabilities are relatively common outcomes of the disease itself. A panel of medical experts later implicated Pfizer in the incident, concluding the drug had been administered as part of an illegal clinical trial without authorization from the Nigerian government or consent from the children's parents. This led to a lawsuit from the Nigerian government over informed consent. Pfizer countered that it met all the necessary regulations. The drug was approved for general use in the U.S., and eventually withdrawn due to hepatotoxicity. AZT trials conducted on HIV-positive African subjects by U.S. physicians and the University of Zimbabwe were not performed with proper informed consent. The United States began testing AZT treatments in Africa in 1994, through projects funded by the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, the World Health Organization, WHO, and the National Institutes of Health, NIH. It included testing of over 17,000 women for a medication that prevents mother-to-child transmission of HIV-AIDS. The subjects did not fully understand the testing methods, the effectiveness, the possible dangers, or the nature of a placebo in testing situations. They were also told about the trials under duress. Half of these women received a placebo that has no effect, making transmission likely. As a result, an estimated 1,000 babies contracted HIV-AIDS although a proven life-saving regimen already existed. The CDC ended the short course testing in 1998 after they announced they had enough information from Thailand trials. Forced sexual reassignment in South Africa, 1970s to 1980s. In a project headed by Dr. Aubrey Levin during the 1970s to 1980s, the South African Defense Force forced lesbian and gay military personnel to undergo sex change operations. This was part of a secret program to purge homosexuality in the army. It included psychological coercion, chemical castration, electric shock, and other unethical medical experiments. An estimated 900 forced sexual reassignment operations may have been performed between 1971 and 1989 at military hospitals. Most of the victims were males, young 16 to 24-year-old white men who were drafted into the army during the South African border war. Women were also subject to the experimentation.
Forced contraception in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe 1970s. Depo-Provera was clinically tested on black Rhodesian, now Zimbabwean, women in the 1970s. Once approved, the drug was used as a birth control measure. Women on white-run commercial farms were coerced into accepting Depo-Provera. In 1981, the drug was banned in what was by then Zimbabwe. Sterilization experiments in German Southwest Africa, now part of Namibia late 1800s to 1910s. Dr. Eugen Fischer conducted sterilization experiments on Herero women in German Southwest Africa, now Namibia, Les Walvis Bay etc., in the early 1900s. His experimentation was largely done on mixed-race offspring in order to provide justification to ban mixed-race marriages. He joined the Nazi party thereafter where he did similar experiments in the Jewish concentration camps. Late-stage studies were later continued by Dr. Hans Harmsende, founder of the German branch of International Planned Parenthood Federation, IPPF, who is also associated with the compulsory sterilization in Nazi Germany. Effects on legitimate medicine Unethical medical experimentation that has occurred for over a century may be the cause of the documented fear and mistrust of doctors and medicine in Africa. For example, polio has been on the rise in Nigeria, Chad, and Burkina Faso because many people there avoid vaccinations because they believe that the vaccines are contaminated with HIV or sterilization agents. Due to the meningitis testing incident in Kano, many Nigerians now refuse to participate in clinical trials. The Role of Poverty Many African nations cannot afford to offer medicine for their citizens without subsidies from multinational pharmaceutical corporations. To court these pharmaceutical corporations, some African nations minimize legal regulations on the conduct of medical research, which prevents potential legal battles from arising. This forces some Africans to make a Hobson's choice, experimental medicine or no medicine at all. People living in the rural or slum area are also more vulnerable to experimentation because they are more likely to be illiterate and to misunderstand the effects of the experimentation. Codes of Ethics Several national and international bodies have devised codes of ethics for conducting experiments and clinical trials. These include the Nuremberg Code and Helsinki Declaration and the Protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights on the Rights of Women in Africa, which seeks to prohibit all medical and scientific experiments on women without their prior informed consent. Popular Culture References The book and movie The Constant Gardener highlighted the dynamics of conduct in clinical trials in Africa in the slum areas. This was based on the real-life meningitis incident in Kano, Nigeria. New York Times bestseller book Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington, provides a historical account of experimentation on African Americans, but also includes the links to African experimentation. Let's take a look at Big Pharma, The Gates Foundation and Covid. Despite annual revenues approaching $1 trillion, the global pharmaceutical industry has lately experienced a critical decline in the rate of profit, for which it lays most of the blame on regulatory requirements. A U.S. think tank has estimated the cost of new drug development at $5.8 billion per drug, of which 90% is incurred in Phase three clinical trials mandated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and similar agencies in Europe. These are tests administered to large groups of human subjects in order to confirm the effectiveness and monitor the side effects of new vaccines and other medicines. The international business consulting firm McKinsey & Company called the situation dramatic and urged big pharma executives to envision responses that go well beyond simply tinkering with the cost base, primarily the relocation of clinical trials to emerging markets, where drug safety testing is seen as relatively cheap, speedy, and lax. It is in this specific context that BMGF's intervention in the distribution of certain vaccines and contraceptives must be seen. Heavily invested in Big Pharma, 
the Gates Foundation is well positioned to facilitate pharmaceutical R&D strategies tailored to the realities of the developing world, where to speed the translation of scientific discovery into implementable solutions, we seek better ways to evaluate and refine potential interventions such as vaccine candidates before they enter costly and time-consuming clinical trials. In plain language, BMGF promises to assist Big Pharma in its efforts to circumvent Western regulatory regimes by sponsoring cut-rate drug trials in the periphery. The instruments of this assistance are Gates Foundation-funded institutions like the Gavi Alliance, the Global Health Innovative Technology Fund, and the Program for Appropriate Technology in Health, PATH, public-private partnerships purportedly devoted to saving third-world lives. Notion Ally independent but so heavily funded by Gates as to function as virtual arms of the foundation, these organizations began to conduct large-scale clinical trials in Africa and South Asia in the mid-2000s. Africa soon experienced an unprecedented increase in health research involving humans who were typically poverty-stricken and poorly educated, the results were predictably lethal. In 2010 the Gates Foundation funded a Phase 3 trial of a malaria vaccine developed by GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, administering the experimental treatment to thousands of infants across seven African countries. Eager to secure the WHO approval necessary to license the vaccine for global distribution, GSK and BMGF declared the trials a smashing success, and the popular press uncritically reproduced the publicity. Few bothered to look closely at the study's fine print, which revealed that the trials resulted in 151 deaths and caused serious adverse effects, example paralysis, seizures, febrile convulsions, in 1048 of 5,949 children aged 5 to 17 months. Similar stories emerged in the wake of the Gates-funded MenAfriVac campaign in Chad, where unconfirmed reports alleged that 50 of 500 children forcibly vaccinated for meningitis later developed paralysis. Citing additional abuses, a South African newspaper declared, we are guinea pigs for the drug makers. It was in India, however, that the implications of BMGF's collaboration with Big Pharma first rose to widespread public attention. In 2010 seven adolescent tribal girls in Gujarat and Andhra Pradesh died after receiving injections of HPV, human papillomavirus, vaccines as part of a large-scale demonstrational study funded by the Gates Foundation and administered by PATH. The vaccines, developed by GSK and Merck, were given to approximately 23,000 girls between 10 and 14 years of age, ostensibly to guard against cervical cancers they might develop in old age. Extrapolating from trial data, Indian physicians later estimated that at least 1,200 girls experienced severe side effects or developed autoimmune disorders as a result of the injections. No follow-up examinations or medical care were offered to the victims. Further investigations revealed pervasive violations of ethical norms, vulnerable village girls were virtually press-ganged into the trials, their parents bullied into signing consent forms they could not read by PATH representatives who made false claims about the safety and efficacy of the drugs. In many cases signatures were simply forged. An Indian parliamentary committee determined that the Gates-funded vaccine campaign was in fact a large-scale clinical trial conducted on behalf of the pharmaceutical firms and disguised as an observational study in order to outflank statutory requirements. The committee found that PATH had violated all laws and regulations laid down for clinical trials by the government in a clear-cut violation of human rights and a case of child abuse. The Gates Foundation did not trouble to respond to the findings but issued an annual letter calling for still more health-related R&D in poor countries and reaffirming its belief in the value of every human life. Making Markets By thrusting the HPV vaccine on India, the Gates Foundation was not merely facilitating low-cost clinical trials but was also assisting in the creation of new markets for a dubious and underperforming product. 
Merck's version of the vaccine, called Gardasil, was introduced in 2006 in conjunction with a high-powered marketing campaign that generated $1.5 billion in annual sales, the vaccine was named brand of the year by pharmaceutical executive for building a market out of thin air. Aided by enthusiastic endorsements from the medical establishment, Merck at first persuaded Americans that Gardasil could protect their daughters from cervical cancer. In fact the vaccine was of questionable efficacy. The relationship between HPV infection at a young age and development of cancer 20 to 40 years later is not known. The virus does not appear to be very harmful because almost all HPV infections are cleared by the immune system. Some women may develop precancerous cervical lesions and eventually cervical cancer. It is currently impossible to predict in which women this will occur and why. The prestigious Journal of the American Medical Association in 2009 openly questioned whether the vaccine's risks outweighed the potential benefits. As word of Gardasil's defects emerged, American and European women began to decline the vaccine, and by 2010 Fortune magazine declared Gardasil a marketplace dud as year-over-year -year sales fell by 18%. GSK's copycat HPV vaccine, Cervarix, experienced a comparable sales trough. Billions in profits and capitalization were at stake. At this stage the Gates Foundation stepped in. Its principal tool was the Gavi Alliance, launched by BMGF in 2000 with the explicit goal to shape vaccine markets. Gavi was charged with co-financing vaccine purchases with third world public health ministries, Meanwhile finding the type of large-scale funding needed to sustain long-term immunization programs and laying the foundations that will allow governments to continue immunization programs long after Gavi support ends. In essence, BMGF would buy up stockpiled drugs that had failed to create sufficient demand in the West, press them on the periphery at a discount, and lock in long-term purchase agreements with third-world governments. In 2011 Gavi held a highly publicized board meeting in Dhaka where, with the enthusiastic endorsement of UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, it announced a worldwide campaign to introduce HPV vaccines to developing countries, if developing countries can demonstrate their ability to deliver the vaccines, up to 2 million women and girls in 9 countries could be protected from cervical cancer by 2015. GSK adopted a global vaccine availability model involving tiered pricing to permit transitioning into poorer countries with the help of partners such as UNICEF, the World Health Organization, and the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. Meanwhile PATH was rushing to complete a large-scale, five-year-long project to generate and disseminate evidence for informed public sector introduction of HPV vaccines in India, Uganda, Peru, and Vietnam. An Indian parliamentary report observed, all these countries have state-funded national vaccine immunization programs, which if expanded to include Gardasil, would mean tremendous financial benefit to the manufacturer. By FI 2012, Merck was able to report a 35% jump in worldwide Gardasil sales, reflecting inter alia favorable performance in Japan and the emerging markets, where sales growth is being driven by vaccines. Evidently, a drug rightly deemed suspect by Americans would be good enough for women in the developing world. Other dangerous drugs that failed to gain a toehold in Western markets have received similar attention from the Gates Foundation. Norplant a subcutaneous contraceptive implant that effectively sterilizes women for as long as five years, was pulled from the U.S. market after 36,000 women filed suit over severe side effects undisclosed by the manufacturer, including excessive menstrual bleeding, headaches, nausea, dizziness, and depression. Slightly modified and rebranded as JDEL, the same drug is now being heavily promoted in Africa by USAID, the Gates Foundation, and its affiliates.
A recent article on the Gates-sponsored website Impatient Optimists elides its dangers and disingenuously states that the drug never gained traction in the U.S. because inserting and removing the device was cumbersome. With Gates Foundation support, however, JDL has played a pivotal role in bringing implants to the developing world and is soon to be complemented by a second Norplant clone, Merck's Implantin. An equally risky contraceptive, Pfizer's Depo-Provera, recently received the Gates Foundation imprimatur for distribution to poor women worldwide. In the US and India feminists fought against approval of the injectable drug for decades due to its alarming list of side effects, including infertility, irregular bleeding, decreased libido, depression, high blood pressure, excessive weight gain, breast tenderness, vaginal infections, hair loss, stomach pains, blurred vision, joint pain, growth of facial hair, acne, cramps, diarrhea, skin rash, tiredness, and swelling of limbs as well as potentially irreversible osteoporosis. After the U.S. Food and Drug Administration succumbed to industry pressure and granted approval in 1992, studies found a marked racial disparity in Depo-Provera prescriptions between white and African-American women, leading to charges that this form of long-acting provider-controlled birth control is routinely given to women of color in order to deny them the ability to control their own reproduction. White American and European women, by contrast, receive the drug only rarely and typically as a treatment for endometriosis, greatly limiting its commercial potential in the West. Hence Pfizer stands to benefit enormously from a Gates-sponsored program, announced with much fanfare at the 2012 London Summit on Family Planning, to distribute the drug to millions of women in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa by 2016. You do the numbers, if 120 million new women users chose Depo-Provera, at an estimated average cost between $120 to $300 per woman annually, that works out to $15 billion to $36 billion in new sales annually, a nice payoff from leveraging $4 billion in research money. Foundation publicity suggests that its aggressive backing of a discredited drug is merely a response to appeals from poor women. Many African women want to use injectable contraceptives but simply cannot get access to them, claimed PATH President and CEO Steve Davis. Reproductive rights activist Kwame Faisu disagrees, no African woman would agree to being injected if she had full knowledge of the contraceptive's dangerous side effects. And last let's take a look at how COVID-19 testing is happening. Medical colonialism in Africa is not new. Remarks about testing coronavirus drugs on Africans part of pattern where some bodies are dehumanist, others protected. Karsten Noko is a Zimbabwean lawyer and humanitarian working across sub-Saharan Africa. April 8, 2020. For decades, medical trials have been conducted on patients in Africa, often without their informed consent. For decades, medical trials have been conducted on patients in Africa, often without their informed consent. Last Wednesday, a French doctor caused controversy when he proposed that vaccines for the COVID-19 pandemic be tried on Africans because they lack masks and other personal protective equipment. By Friday, after widespread accusations of racism, he was forced to apologize for what he then called his clumsily expressed remarks. COVID-19 exposes need for radical policies to tackle inequality. Germany to impose stricter COVID lockdown during holiday season. How have philosophers responded to the pandemic? South Korea logs record 1,030 cases amid COVID-19 emergency. But the type of thinking exposed by his words is nothing new. Neither is it exceptional to this doctor. It is part of a trend that for generations has seen the dehumanizing of some people because of the superiority complex of others. In early March 2020, as coronavirus cases began an exponential growth curve, 
some people asked why African countries were not recording higher numbers of COVID-19 cases. The tone of these queries had the impact of questioning if Africans were somehow genetically immune to the new virus. But why would this question even be raised if we know the biological setup of all humans is similar? The dehumanization of people from the global south was one of the driving forces behind the slave trade and colonialism. It is inconceivable that anyone could fathom the thought of trading in human beings unless they regarded that person as inferior. Joseph Conrad, in his book Heart of Darkness writing in 1899, grappled with the question of whether the people he had met in Africa were really human. He opines, no they were not inhuman. Well, you know, that was the worst of it, this suspicion of their not being inhuman. It is the naturalness of someone even posing such questions that cements these ideas, the acceptance of a second-class humanity that allows the dispossession and trade in human lives to be so easily explained away. Dehumanist in life, fetishist in death. Sartja Bartman, or Sarah Bartman as she is commonly called, was a Khoikhoi woman born in what is present-day South Africa. In 1810, she was abducted and taken to Europe where she was turned into an object of an exhibition for European audiences because of her body and her perceived large buttocks. Many of the audience members came to see her because they thought that she was not human. When she died, a French surgeon dissected her body and concluded that she had ape-like features. In 2002, the South African government finally managed to retrieve her body from the French National Museum in Paris where her remains had stood in exhibit for more than 150 years. Bartman was dehumanist in life, and fetishized in death, in pursuit of a scientific theory that sought to draw biological and scientific differences between white and black people. Two centuries after Bartman's death, the dehumanization of certain races is not put on display in such an obvious way. But the trend of using some bodies for the benefit of others continues in different forms. In the 2014 West Africa Ebola outbreak, for instance, more than 250,000 blood samples were collected from patients by laboratories in France, the UK, and the US among others, often with no informed consent, as patients underwent testing and treatment for Ebola, to help researchers create new vaccines and medicines. Today, South African, French and American researchers refuse to disclose how many of these samples they still hold, citing national security as an excuse. As one patient remarked, they are using it to make research, make billions of dollars. That medicine they produce will not be free. It will be something that you will sell. Because the affected communities are poorer and people lack the information that will help protect them from such researchers, their samples are taken, and used at will to produce medicine for people who will pay for treatment, often without their knowledge. A long history of medical trials. In 1996, Kano State in Nigeria was the epicentre of a huge meningitis outbreak. At the time, Pfizer, one of the largest research pharmaceutical companies in the world, decided to conduct clinical trials to test a drug it was developing. Pfizer neglected to acquire informed consent from the parents of the patients, who were, anyway, too stressed to make rational decisions. It was only in 2009 that Pfizer settled out of court and paid $75 million to the Kano state government and $175,000 to the parents of four of the children who had died during the outbreak and clinical trials. Although Pfizer argued in its legal defense that the children had been killed by the disease and not their drugs, the out-of-court settlement robbed us of an opportunity to have the medical facts established before a court of law. Similar trials and tests were conducted in Zimbabwe in 1994 with the drug AZT, projects funded by the US-based CDC and NIH resulted in adverse effects for patients. In Namibia in the early 1900s, 
Sterilization tests were done on Herero women by German doctors who sought to provide scientific backing to ban mixed-race marriages. Researchers know only too well that conducting such research in the global north is more onerous and has too much red tape. In the global south, big pharmaceuticals, often with the complicit support of bribed government officials, have it easy. As they chase huge profits, the lives of often uninformed patients are far from a main consideration. For many people from the affected communities, the work of researchers is clearly meant to serve the financial interests of those who pretend to be kind-hearted or philanthropic. What remains curious is how diseases like TB, malaria, and hepatitis continue to kill millions every year, and yet the amount of energy and resources being put into eradicating them is nowhere near the efforts against COVID-19 and Ebola. It would appear that certain diseases get more attention because of the people they affect or potentially threaten. Imagine suspicion. In 2011, the CIA, under the cover of an international NGO, collected DNA samples in Pakistan in a fake vaccination campaign as they trailed Osama bin Laden. The move had the impact of straining an already complicated relationship between the US and Pakistan, but it also had the much wider impact of providing proof to the septics who always suspected there was a hidden agenda in the delivery of medical services from the global north. In the race to contain the coronavirus pandemic, the last thing overburdened health practitioners need is some so-called clumsy remarks from a fellow medic. But when a French doctor suggests that Africa must be included as part of a vaccine trial, it is not surprising that suspicions and anger are reignited, especially when there are relatively fewer cases on the continent than there are in Europe and the US. Given the history of medical colonialism in Africa, and the current realities around the spread of COVID-19, how do we begin to persuade anyone that those remarks were something other than the continuation of a racist, dehumanizing approach that sees some humans as expendable? How are Africans expected to not react to yet another attempt to use them as guinea pigs to develop drugs that would serve the global north, whose well-funded health systems can afford the hefty-priced life-saving medication that Africans themselves often die without? All over the world researchers, epidemiologists, and other health experts are working around the clock on a vaccine for COVID-19. The race for a vaccine, however, presents some concern considering the histories of medicine in which black bodies are undervalued and subjected to experimentation. In light of this, vaccine testing that is specifically targeted at Africans and black bodies is particularly worrying. During an interview on French national television, Dr. Jean-Paul Myra, head of ICU services at the Cochin Hospital in Paris, and Dr. Camille Locke, research director for France's National Institute of Health and Medical Research, made explicit mention to how the testing of a potential vaccine should be done in Africa. The vaccine in question is an existing treatment for tuberculosis. The doctor's reasoning is that Africa lacks the infrastructure to effectively treat COVID-19 on its own, and therefore trials should be done there. Myra likened the trials to aid studies performed on prostitutes because they are highly exposed and they don't protect themselves. Not only is this argument incredibly reductive in its colonial assumptions that the entire continent of Africa is defined by poor public health and poverty, but it ignores the real impacts COVID-19 is having on other global populations. At the time of writing, the World Health Organization estimates infections for the Americas at over 7.3 million, and Europe at over 3 million. Africa on the other hand doesn't even top 600,000 cases. Yet no one is suggesting that vaccine tests be performed in the Americas just because US Americans have poor public health compliance and corrupt, incompetent leadership. Why are some health experts pushing for vaccine testing to be focused in Africa? Medical advancement has a storied history in black pain. A systemic disregard for black lives and a desensitization to black suffering has existed for hundreds of years and has worked to maintain the state of black undervaluation. 
Notable examples of this included the Tuskegee syphilis study, where 600 black American men were subject to uninformed testing of a new syphilis drug and prevented from receiving treatment for the actual disease, even after an effective treatment was discovered. Another is the AZT-HIV-AIDS transmission preventative drug testing in Zimbabwe in 1994 where infected women were not properly informed about the experiment, and some were given placebos which led to the transition of the virus to 1,000 babies. Illegal meningitis treatments were performed in Nigeria, where testing was done without governmental approval and led to many child deaths, blindness, and brain damage. These are only a few examples out of a plethora where medicine, through experimentation on black peoples, acts as a form of science racism. The idea that black bodies are tougher and able to withstand experimentation is racist and incorrect, and has been dis proven multiple times. Yet many medical personnel still hold onto it, thus engaging in racist assumptions that deny the humanity of black people. As a result, black lives are seen as expendable in the service of medicine, causing an internalization of anti-blackness, which alongside other discriminatory practices, blocks access to efficient medical care resulting in an increase in health issues. And direct medical racism isn't the only way that anti-blackness harms the health of black people. Systematic poverty due to a history of racist policies keeps black people in highly polluted areas with little to no infrastructure. Distrust in the systems of the oppressors translates into distrust of the entire medical system, leading black people to seek care less frequently if they even have the resources to access care in the first place. COVID-19 is a global problem that demands global solutions. But the medical community cannot be allowed to exploit black bodies in order to get there. Black people are as deserving of care as any other race medical ethics need not be applied to only white bodies. Black health matters, it always has, and it always should. On March 30, 2020, an American company L.E.A.F. Pharmaceuticals, lifting and empowering all families, based in the United States, has announced that it will conduct clinical trials of a vaccine against the coronavirus, COVID-19, in Rwanda. Dr. Charles Karangwe, director of Rwanda Food and Drugs Authority, FDA, confirmed that this company had received the necessary authorizations to start its experiments. Africans rightly screamed at the scandal on social media and in online media. The crucial question is how these clinical trials will be carried out in an African country, such as Rwanda when the country has only about 70 patients compared to European countries like Italy or even the USA where this pandemic is killing thousands. Rwanda has so far registered 70 cases of people who tested positive of the virus and are currently in isolation and undergoing treatment. On Monday March 30, 2020, no new cases were registered with the Ministry of Health stating that none of the 70 is in critical condition. Another cause for concern is how quickly LEAF has obtained the necessary approvals. In the normal strict application of the preliminary protocols to this kind of experiments, there should be long consultations between the National Actors and Order of Doctors and Pharmacists, National Committee of Ethics, Specialists in Pulmonary Diseases, Medicine of Disasters, International Organizations, WHO, and the authorities of the country concerned, not to slow down or delay research, but to ensure that the product will not have harmful consequences for the health of the population. In Rwanda, these consultative meetings never took place. The decision went like a letter to the post. Even the Minister of Health has been left speechless when it is up to him, as the highest health authority, to announce this initiative which has immeasurable implications for the lives of Rwandans. How can this be explained? Dr. David Himbara, the former economic advisor to Paul Kagame, tells us that Klitnayakiza, the director of Leaf Pharmaceuticals, is a henchman for the Rwandan president. In fact, 
In 2009, Paul Kagame raised more than $22 million from the Rwandan Pension Funds, Rwanda Social Security Board, formerly Social Fund of Rwanda. He paid them into the American company Merrimack Pharmaceuticals, which has among its shareholders, Michael Fairbanks and Michael Porter, two eminent members of its Presidential Advisory Council, POC. As part of the agreement governing this Rwandan investment, Klitnayakiza, also a member of the POC, joined Merrimack as senior vice president in 2009. Without any explanation, Nyakaiza left this multinational pharmaceutical company in 2014 and formed his own company, Leaf Pharmaceuticals LLC. Nobody knows what has become of the $22 million invested by Rwanda. Is it the money that Nyakaiza used to start her own business, with Kagame as the filigree investor? And now the coronavirus is becoming a gold mine for President Paul Kagame, Klitnayakaiza interposed. Indeed, this vaccine is a big money deal. Millions of dollars have been spent to research the vaccine. This is why to benefit from it, Rwanda will expose its population to the financial interests of one man, Paul Kagame. And this is how Klitnayakaiza takes to the air on national television to announce the good news. Who else could authorize it if not the all-powerful Rwandan president? It is worth pointing out that Klitnayakaiza, the director of Leaf Pharmaceuticals is not a doctor. Klit obtained a doctorate in mathematics the United States then entered the pharmaceutical sector. In 1991 he was at Syntex Corporation acquired by Roche Holding AG, between 1993 and 2005, he worked for Eli Lilly, a biopharmaceutical company, from 2005 to 2009, he was vice president of GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, one of the ten giants of the global pharmaceutical industry, and from 2009 to 2014, he was executive vice president of Merrimack Pharmaceuticals. In 2011, the American company Merck received authorization to vaccinate more than 100,000 Rwandan girls around the age of 12 who were in grade 6 of primary school. In school centers, they were aligned and against their will, were injected with Gardasil, a vaccine supposed to fight against cervical cancer, but whose side effects were still far from being sufficiently controlled. What is suspected is that these 100,000 young girls have served as guinea pigs in this laboratory. What should be noted is that behind this massive unprecedented vaccination campaign, Rwanda was the first African country to administer this vaccine on a large scale on its population, however, as a strict secrecy deal. The pharmaceutical giant Merck had offered Rwanda free 2 million doses. But under what conditions were these massive vaccination facilities granted? We also remember acts of compulsory male sterilization under the cover of circumcision supposedly to fight against AIDS. Had it not been for the vigilance of human rights NGOs, including Human Rights Watch, this criminal act would have taken its toll. In fact, HRW had then reminded the Rwandan government that the compulsory vasectomy which it applies to its male population is a devaluing, coercive practice which denies humans their reproductive health rights and therefore should be stopped. With the coronavirus, Rwanda will also be one of the first African countries, even in the world, to test the vaccine against this pandemic. How is this possible? If Rwanda was chosen to test the coronavirus vaccine, it is because President Paul Kagame is a licensed dictator and that the modus operandi is prowled for this kind of shenanigans. Will the population to be vaccinated be voluntary or will we summon the population, group them together and vaccinate them on the line as was done for the poor young girls mentioned above? And last but certainly not least, always follow the money. Big Pharma prepares to profit from the coronavirus. Pharmaceutical companies view the coronavirus pandemic as a once-in-a-lifetime business opportunity. As the new coronavirus spreads illness, death, and catastrophe around the world, 
virtually no economic sector has been spared from harm. Yet amid the mayhem from the global pandemic, one industry is not only surviving, it is profiting handsomely. Pharmaceutical companies view COVID-19 as a once-in-a-lifetime business opportunity, said Gerald Posner, author of Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. The world needs pharmaceutical products, of course. For the new coronavirus outbreak, in particular, we need treatments and vaccines and, in the U.S., tests. Dozens of companies are now vying to make them. They're all in that race, said Posner, who described the potential payoffs for winning the race as huge. The global crisis will potentially be a blockbuster for the industry in terms of sales and profits, he said, adding that the worse the pandemic gets, the higher their eventual profit. The ability to make money off of pharmaceuticals is already uniquely large in the U.S., which lacks the basic price controls other countries have, giving drug companies more freedom over setting prices for their products than anywhere else in the world. During the current crisis, pharmaceutical makers may have even more leeway than usual because of language industry lobbyists inserted into an $8.3 billion coronavirus spending package, passed last week, to maximize their profits from the pandemic. Initially, some lawmakers had tried to ensure that the federal government would limit how much pharmaceutical companies could reap from vaccines and treatments for the new coronavirus that they developed with the use of public funding. In February, Rep. Jan Schakowsky, Deal, and other House members wrote to Trump pleading that he ensure that any vaccine or treatment developed with U.S. taxpayer dollars be accessible, available and affordable, a goal they said couldn't be met if pharmaceutical corporations are given authority to set prices and determine distribution, putting profit-making interests ahead of health priorities. When the coronavirus funding was being negotiated, Schakowsky tried again, writing to Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar on March 2 that it would be unacceptable if the rights to produce and market that vaccine were subsequently handed over to a pharmaceutical manufacturer through an exclusive license with no conditions on pricing or access, allowing the company to charge whatever it would like and essentially selling the vaccine back to the public who paid for its development. But many Republicans opposed adding language to the bill that would restrict the industry's ability to profit, arguing that it would stifle research and innovation. And although Azar, who served as the top lobbyist and head of U.S. operations for the pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly before joining the Trump administration, assured Schakowsky that he shared her concerns, the bill went on to enshrine drug companies' ability to set potentially exorbitant prices for vaccines and drugs they develop with taxpayer dollars. The final aid package not only omitted language that would have limited drug makers' intellectual property rights, it also left out language that had been in an earlier draft that would have allowed the federal government to take any action if it has concerns that the treatments or vaccines developed with public funds are priced too high. Those lobbyists deserve a medal from their pharma clients because they killed that intellectual property provision, said Posner, who added that the omission of language allowing the government to respond to price gouging was even worse. To allow them to have this power during a pandemic is outrageous. How the Senate paved the way for coronavirus profiteering, and how Congress could undo it. The truth is that profiting off public investment is also business as usual for the pharmaceutical industry. Since the 1930s, the National Institutes of Health has put some $900 billion into research that drug companies then use to patent brand name medications, according to Posner's calculations. Every single drug approved by the Food and Drug Administration between 2010 and 2016 involved science funded with tax dollars through the NIH, according to the advocacy group Patients for Affordable Drugs. Taxpayers spent more than $100 billion on that research. Among the drugs that were developed with some public funding and went on to be huge earners for private companies are the HIV drug AZT and the cancer treatment Kimria, 
which Novartis now sells for $475,000. In his book Pharma, Posner points to another example of private companies making exorbitant profits from drugs produced with public funding. The antiviral drug Sofospivir, which is used to treat hepatitis C, stemmed from key research funded by the National Institutes of Health. That drug is now owned by Gilead Sciences, which charges $1,000 per pill more than many people with hepatitis C can afford, Gilead earned $44 billion from the drug during its first three years on the market. Wouldn't it be great to have some of the profits from those drugs go back into public research at the NIH, asked Posner. Instead, the profits have funded huge bonuses for drug company executives and aggressive marketing of drugs to consumers. They have also been used to further boost the profitability of the pharmaceutical sector. According to calculations by Axios, drug companies make 63% of total healthcare profits in the U.S. That's in part because of the success of their lobbying efforts. In 2019, the pharmaceutical industry spent $295 million on lobbying, far more than any other sector in the U.S. That's almost twice as much as the next biggest spender the electronics, manufacturing, and equipment sector and well more than double what oil and gas companies spent on lobbying. The industry also spends lavishly on campaign contributions to both Democratic and Republican lawmakers. Throughout the Democratic primary, Joe Biden has led the pack among recipients of contributions from the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries. Big pharma spending has positioned the industry well for the current pandemic. While stock markets have plummeted in reaction to the Trump administration's bungling of the crisis, more than 20 companies working on a vaccine and other products related to the new SARS-CoV-2 virus have largely been spared. Stock prices for the biotech company Moderna, which began recruiting participants for a clinical trial of its new candidate for a coronavirus vaccine two weeks ago, have shot up during that time. On Thursday, a day of general carnage in the stock markets, Eli Lilly's stock also enjoyed a boost after the company announced that it, too, is joining the effort to come up with a therapy for the new coronavirus. And Gilead Sciences, which is at work on a potential treatment as well, is also thriving. Gilead's stock price was already up since news that its antiviral drug Remdesivir, which was created to treat Ebola, was being given to COVID-19 patients. Today, after Wall Street Journal reported that the drug had a positive effect on a small number of infected cruise ship passengers, the price went up further. Several companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Dias Oren Molecular, and Kiajan have made it clear that they are receiving funding from the Department of Health and Human Services for efforts related to the pandemic, but it is unclear whether Eli Lilly and Gilead Sciences are using government money for their work on the virus. To date, HHS has not issued a list of grant recipients. And according to Reuters, the Trump administration has told top health officials to treat their coronavirus discussions as classified and excluded staffers without security clearances from discussions about the virus. Former top lobbyists of both Eli Lilly and Gilead now serve on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Azar served as director of U.S. operations for Eli Lilly and lobbied for the company, while Joe Grogan, now serving as director of the Domestic Policy Council, was the top lobbyist for Gilead Sciences. And lastly, let's take a look at a well-known experiment on black folks, right here in the America. And remember, the next experiment will be covered, and it just won't be black folks. Tuskegee Experiment, the infamous syphilis study. Known officially as the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, the study began at a time when there was no known treatment for the disease. The Tuskegee experiment began in 1932, at, at a time when there was no known treatment for syphilis. After being recruited by the promise of free medical care, 
600 men originally were enrolled in the project. The participants were primarily sharecroppers, and many had never before visited a doctor. Doctors from the U.S. Public Health Service, PHS, which was running the study, informed the participants 399 men with latent syphilis and a control group of 201 others who were free of the disease they were being treated for bad blood, a term commonly used in the area at the time to refer to a variety of ailments. The men were monitored by health workers but only given placebos such as aspirin and mineral supplements, despite the fact penicillin became the recommended treatment for syphilis in 1947. PHS researchers convinced local physicians in Macon County not to treat the participants, and research was done at the Tuskegee Institute. Now called Tuskegee University, the school was founded in 1881 with Booker T. Washington at its first teacher. In order to track the disease's full progression, researchers provided no effective care as the men died, went blind or insane or experienced other severe health problems due to their untreated syphilis. In the mid-1960s, a PHS venereal disease investigator in San Francisco named Peter Buxton found out about the Tuskegee study and expressed his concerns to his superiors that it was unethical. In response, PHS officials formed a committee to review the study but ultimately opted to continue it, with the goal of tracking the participants until all had died, autopsies were performed and the project data could be analyzed. As a result, Buxton leaked the story to a reporter friend, who passed it on to a fellow reporter, Gene Heller of the Associated Press. Heller broke the story in July 1972, prompting public outrage and forcing the study to shut down. By that time, 28 participants had perished from syphilis, 100 more had passed away from related complications, at least 40 spouses had been diagnosed with it and the disease had been passed to 19 children at birth. In 1973, Congress held hearings on the Tuskegee experiments, and the following year the study's surviving participants, along with the heirs of those who died, received a $10 million out-of-court settlement. Additionally, new guidelines were issued to protect human subjects in U.S. government-funded research projects. In 1947, the Nuremberg Code was established in response to Nazi physicians forcibly performing gruesome experiments on prisoners in concentration camps during World War II. The document set forth basic ethical principles for medical research involving human subjects, such as the requirement that a person must give informed consent before participating in an experiment. As a result of the Tuskegee experiment, many African Americans developed a lingering, deep mistrust of public health officials. In part to foster racial healing, President Clinton issued a 1997 apology, stating, the United States government did something that was wrong deeply, profoundly, morally wrong. It is not only in remembering that shameful past that we can make amends and repair our nation, but it is in remembering that past that we can build a better present and a better future. During his apology, the president announced plans for the establishment of Tuskegee University's National Center for Bioethics in Research and Healthcare. The final study participant passed away in 2004. Herman Shaw speaks as President Bill Clinton looks on during ceremonies at the White House on May 16, 1997, during which Clinton apologized to the survivors and families of the victims of the Tuskegee syphilis study. Herman Shaw speaks as President Bill Clinton looks on during ceremonies at the White House on May 16, 1997, during which Clinton apologized to the survivors and families of the victims of the Tuskegee syphilis study. In 2010, President Barack Obama and other federal officials apologized for another unethical, U.S.-sponsored medical study, conducted decades earlier in Guatemala. In that study, from 1946 to 1948, nearly 700 men and women prisoners, soldiers, mental patients were intentionally infected with syphilis, 
hundreds more people were exposed to other sexually transmitted diseases as part of the study, without their knowledge or consent. The purpose of the study was to determine whether penicillin could prevent, not just cure, syphilis infection. Some of those who became infected never received medical treatment. The results of the study, which took place with the cooperation of Guatemalan government officials, never were published. The American public health researcher in charge of the project, Dr. John Cutler, went on to become a lead researcher in the Tuskegee experiments. Following Cutler's death in 2003, historian Susan Reverby uncovered the records of the Guatemala experiments while doing research related to the Tuskegee study. She shared her findings with U.S. government officials in 2010. Soon afterward, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Secretary of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sebelius issued an apology for the STD study and President Obama called the Guatemalan president to apologize for the experiments. <laughs> what y'all think about that? Let me tell y'all something here. In everything that you do, you got to follow the money. Whenever there's a problem or a crisis arise, you have to follow the money. Because see, what folks do is, folks will create the problem and then sell you the cure. Kind of like what old man told me about the Bible one time. He said the Bible, the, the Bible created sin. Created all these things, that's sin. But then also created the solutions to sell to you. To get rid of those sins. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Now that's what he said now. That ain't my opinion. You know, it ain't the facts. It's just what I heard. But that's how it is. Especially these days. See, folks don't, folks, uh, these pharmaceutical companies, and I had to lay back and I had to really think about this thing. And I had to go back in my mind, way back in history, some of the things that I learned. And I looked at the continent of Africa and how everything, just about everything, all these Ebola's, all these uh, all these viruses and stuff like that, before that they bring these viruses to these, uh, I'm going to say, first world countries, they experimented with them over in Africa. Everything, polio, Ebola. You know, these influenzas, all this stuff. They experiment on Africans. Because, see, nobody don't care nothing about no black folks over in Africa. Because, see, the only thing we care about over here is our color TVs. Watching our football games. You know, smoking our cigars. <laughs> you know, like me smoking my cigar. We don't care about these things. So, whatever eventually affects us over here... In the medical sense I'm talking about right now, they've already experimented with in, in Africans. Like they tell y'all about the AIDS. I remember when, when this AIDS thing came out. What was it, 80s? Somewhere up in there? When the AIDS thing came out. The who the first thing they say, they say it came from Africa. Everything they say comes from Africa. Black people messing around with monkeys. They're not lying. It did come from Africa. Because they bought it from Africa after they experimented on black folks. This is what they've been doing all through history. See, y'all don't know. See, we all connected. See, we all one people. What affects somebody else is going to eventually affect you. But we keep our blind eye to these things. Why these folks, these pharmaceutical companies and all these uh, people that take money from pharmaceutical companies while they give us 
give us the, the virus. How they put the virus on us, let the virus out there on us, and then they sell us the cure. <laughs> Ain't that so? They already know what it's going to do to people. It's like they hold governments hostage. Pharmaceutical companies, they hold governments hostage after they letting these viruses out. Because they didn't see what these viruses do to people. Like the people now, they see how how these some of some of these are uh, these are stuff that they they they, they want to give you for cancer. Did they experiment? Like y'all read that here? Listen to the article. Some of they went over to Africa, you know, trying to get you know how you gonna present someone in a third world country uh, 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 a vaccine for something that is not common to their country. African women didn't, didn't have, don't have the problems that American women have because the American women died and the African diets are different. The women don't have the same problem, but yeah, you want to go over to Africa with this virus and experiment, experiment on these African women on, on, on how to prevent uh, cervical cancer or something like that when African women don't experience cervical cancers because they don't live under the same condition, eat the same food. That American women do. But you go over there and experiment with it. Give them, they say, tell them, look, this thing here is made for cervical cancer, but what it's actually doing is it's actually sterilizing the people where they can't make babies. And the whole point of what these things is is that you want to stop the Africans from having babies. That's what you want to do. Just like that white lady over here who started that uh, uh family, family of plant family planning, that white woman did. Talking about birth control. Thing, that was something that was put in place that was to sterilize the black women to keep them from having babies. Same with the syphilis that they did. But what happens is this stuff gets out of control and it gets out, out of control to where other populations or races of people gets this thing. So now it's an epidemic. Just like crack. Crack was an epidemic until it got out of the black community. Then it became an epidemic. And long as black people was killing themselves, killing their mother, putting their mama on crack, putting their brother on crack, it was okay. But when it left the community and other races started getting hooked on this stuff, then it became an epidemic. Like this abortion thing. When that white lady started, it was started to sterilize black women. Simplest government, it was, it, it was started to sterilize black men. But what they couldn't control is it getting out of the community. Now little young white girls starting to have abortion. See, a long time ago, what y'all don't realize is that when, when little white girls got knocked up when they were 12, 13, they mama sent them off to boarding school somewhere. But it wasn't boarding school. They sent them out to, to go have a baby somewhere. They, they, didn't, they, they didn't send the, the, the little gal off to go get abortion. They sent the little gal off to go have the baby. Now, I know I'm getting off of two separate different things here, but y'all know me when I get to talking about something. I'm just going to talk about it. Look, over Thanksgiving, you know, I, you know, I had got invited over to some good folks' house, and we were sitting there talking, and we got to talk about, I think it was Update in Quebec. You know, one of the gentlemen said, he, you know, we were talking about the family history, and I think his mama, I think she was Irish, and I want to say the daddy was I want to say he was French, French Canadian. I want to French. Uh, I don't say. I know say. I want to say the, the, the. I want to say the dad was Irish, and I think the mom was Catholic or something like that. I can't recall how it was, but the gist of what I'm saying is that he was saying 
the reason why up in in Canada you got French Canadians up there. That's all they speak is French. But he was saying during the France, the French and Canadian Revolution, right? When with the people up in France, you know, I think it was the Irish. They were when I, I want to say it's the Irish that was being discriminated against. Or no, I think not. They think the French was being discriminated against, something like that. The French was being discriminated against, right? And they were like the black folks up there in Canada. It was being discriminated against. And he said that uh, his uh, his his partner, his grandparents, they went to church. And he said the pastor, the minister, or uh, uh, whoever whoever does day services said, well, we understand that we are, per se, the low-class folks here. He said, we understand that we can't do nothing about it. But what we can do is, we can go out, we can make plenty of babies. Now, what he was saying was, in about 10 years, we're going to outbreed them. You see what I'm saying? When we outbreed them, then they won't be dominant anymore. And now up there in Quebec, that's all they speak is French. Don't go up there trying to speak English or German or Japanese or whatever the other language is. They only speak French, and that's what they speak because they outbred them. Now, if they had that white woman here in the United States who commit that family planning thing, she'd have had all them folks getting abortions like the black folks over here, like they do the African over there. They sterilize the African women with all these uh, biological uh, experiments for these viruses and these trial drugs. They just killed the continent of Africa. Just like they did over here. With all this uh, birth control. Now one of the main reasons this foundation I got thinking about when I was listening to the article, Bill Gates, the Bill Gates Foundation. Now Bill Gates was a big computer man, big computer man, right? But all of a sudden now, Couple of years back, he left his he he uh he diversified from the computer business and went into this humanitarian thing, and this humanitarian thing is the healthcare, right? The healthcare of the world. You know, he want to save the world, overpopulation. But we see how the Gates Foundation is benefiting in some of these pharmaceutical experiments over in Africa. Control the world population. How we gonna do this? We have to find the right combination of viruses and germs. Then we got to have, we got to be an experiment on them. So they experiment on Africans, African women, African people. And then what happens in a few years after they get the formula just right where, where, where they have the cure. You see what I'm saying? They have the cure. See, they, 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 they hit the African women with, with the viruses where they can't have babies, sterilized, they have all these other uh, malfunctions. They hit the men with all these viruses. They hit the kids with all these viruses. And then they experiment on them with the experiment. And once they get it all tuned up, once they have the virus and they have the cure, what do you think is coming next? Hmm? If they want, if they want population control, because that's the whole thing. And I don't understand this population control. These folks want population control. And at the same time, population control, we can make money. That's what they're saying all about money. How much money do these pharmaceutical companies need? And you say we can't feed the world. The world ain't that big compared to people, ain't that many people compared to the world. The world is big. It's just that they have us living in these the condensed urban environments. Take a drive across the United States. 
Tell me how much over road you see before you get to a big city. And they say overpopulation. There's only population in these urban environments and they had got us all packed in because they lured us in with jobs and opportunity. But then they took all the job opportunity away and now you have what you got now in these cities. This COVID is just exposing everything. The pharmaceutical companies, they, they, they create the virus and they create the cure, then they hold us hostage. Now, I'm not telling y'all this COVID thing ain't real because it's real. just like every other virus is real. But this thing here is all about two things. It's all about a population control experiment and it's about money. And politicians don't care nothing about us. Your party don't care nothing about you. You don't care nothing about me. No matter what color you is. But what I'm sad about is, I'm sad about, when I look at this thing is, when people don't like, I'm sad about it. And then, and then, and here's another thing about Africa. Just like doing slavery, right? Because people say, well, doing slavery, black people sold black people into slavery. Well, that, that that's definitely true. That's definitely true because white folks couldn't go in, a white European or a Spanish, whatever he is, he couldn't go into the interior of Africa and chase no Africans. He couldn't either die of malaria or snake bike or something before he even seen an African. Just like over here in the United States that you couldn't, that Indians didn't make good slaves. They tried to enslave Indians. But how you want to slave Indian, Indian when this is his land? When he get loose, you can't go find him. You can't go catch him. Because you may get killed out there in, in the woods trying to find an Indian because you don't know the land. That's why Indians didn't make good slaves. That's why they make good slaves. But you go to Africa, right? And you go in there and you and you and you do, because you had tribes enslaved other tribes. Just like you had Europeans when they fought against each other, right? If the Romans beat somebody else, they enslaved up people. It, it wasn't no different between Europeans and the African continent. If, if an African tribe war against another tribe, yes, they did take those people as they trade slaves or whatever. Just like the Europeans did, the Romans did. All these European empires did the same thing when they conquered another nation. They enslaved them in one way or the other. No different. But what's going on today is in 2020, the Afri some African nations still got that mentality. You have greedy politicians in every color. So like in the article, they talked about Rwanda. You got greedy politicians. Not people, politicians. I don't consider politicians people. You got greedy politicians like over in Rwanda. Rwanda had a low case of COVID. Low case, 6300. Africa had a low case of COVID. Now it's on the uprise because of what? Because of the experiments they're doing over there because they want to do the drug trials over there. So you get with these politicians, all these politicians, all this, these dirty politicians, these, as, as, they, as they say, these, uh, excuse me, these friendly, these, uh, these friendly presidents, you offer them all this kind of money and they expose, they let you expose their people to this COVID thing. So you can watch these black people walk around in Wanda who had a low case, low case of COVID. I think there's like six, six, three hundred or less than that. So oh, I think it was like 630, something like that. And nobody died of it. Everybody got over it. 
But now the pharmaceutical companies go down there and offer the president all this money and we're winding Africa and what this way what, and what, what this low class person do. He opened his country up to spread the virus so they can experiment on them folks. <laughs> Man, let me tell y'all something. Yeah, this COVID is a real like everything else real. But let me tell you something. This thing here is about population reduction and money. That's all this thing about. And nobody care about the people. Nobody never cared about the folks in Africa. Because like I tell folks all the time, Africa can't defend itself. <laughs> Africa was split up into what? Four, six countries? I'm going to do a story on that. The Berlin, the Berlin, the something, where you had these six countries got together, five, six countries got together and split Africa up. They divided Africa. Europeans went in and divided Africa. That's like somebody, you got five, five bedrooms in your house. That's like that you sitting on your couch watching a football game and, and five folks come in and say, look, I'm taking this bedroom and this guy, I'm taking this one. They all split your bedrooms up. And you can't say nothing about it. You just sitting on the couch. Then they unplug your TV. That would happen to Africa. And y'all wonder why Africa's in the shape it is in? Because it, it, it was under it's under it was under control by other nations. And then when some of and some of the countries gave parts of Africa back to them, they took all the natural resources out. There wasn't nothing left. You had untrained, unskilled people. You got a guy right now by the name of Justin Ware. He fighting the UFC. He goes down to the Congo and build wells for the pygmies. Ain't that something? Pygmies, primitive people can't even find water in Africa. And the pygmies been in, how long pygmies been in Africa? If pygmies can't find water, it take a white European from America to raise money in America to go over to Africa to dig wells for Africans. Now this that that is disturbing me when I look at these things. I think about Africa. I say to myself, man, Africa, all these natural resources that everybody else will come in and find, but African folks they can't find. They can't find. It's like it's like what happened was when you when you had these European countries that came in and divided Africa. It's like I tell people about welfare, right? You 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 put people in these projects like in South Africa. They put they they had they they had they had the uh, had the African they had the African in South Africa in uh, uh, Johannesburg in Alexander. They had them in ghettos in Providence, right? This is what you do to people, and what you do is you control their subsidies, you control their living, you give them just enough to eat, just enough to shelter their head. The whatever come on side your town and attack you. And after you pull out all your resources, right, you up and leave. And you leave and they ain't got no skills. Because you know what? It's like they've been on welfare. They, you, they, they, they didn't sit on their butt and they got free subsidies and got so comfortable relying on you to when you leave, they ain't got nothing. Like some of these big cities in America. Big cities in America are falling apart. Go to Camden and some of the other places. The economic base left the people walk around like zombies between drugs and no skills walk around saying nobody care about us ain't that something nobody care about us you got to care about yourself 
Like people on welfare over here. You set your tail up on welfare over here. When the government cut your welfare off or cut your Section 8 off, then what you going to do? I'll give you another example. Got this show I'll be watching. I'll be watching this show. I watch it on YouTube. You call Can't Pay, We'll Take It Away. It's about the bailup in England. If you owe money or if you laid up there on rent on somebody and you ain't paying, the, the bailups, the high court can come in and just kick you out that same day on the street, even if you got children. Show is can't pay. We'll take it away. Y'all check it out on YouTube. And I've been listening to that show. And so many people saying that yeah, I got two kids. Y'all can't put me out today. But why you pay your rent in a whole year? Why you pay your rent in two years? Well, I ain't pay my part of rent because the government cut off my money. Now, what it is, is that the government in England pays so much, just like over here, Section 8. You know, they pay so much and you got to pay the other half. Well, people get so slick, right? They lay up on something so long that they stop paying their half. So the government get tired of paying, folks, because you ain't paying your half. So the government stop paying. And when they go in to kick some of these people out their house, some of these people been laying up there on them landlords for a year, two years, ain't been paying their share of the rent because they say the government cut them off. But then the, some of them houses be so filthy. People laying up in other people's house, getting free money, and still can't clean it up, filthy. Or you get some of them laid up in people's houses. They have Gucci bags and, and DKNY bags and all this beautiful big screen TVs. But they ain't paid their rent in about six months or a year, two years. And they complain because the sheriff said, you got to get out today. This is what happens when you live on government subsidies. When you depend on other folks to take care of you. You end up like Africa. You end up in a place where you got people with surrounded by beautiful natural resources can't figure out where to find water at. And they people been there since the beginning of time. Now how, is that? how the hell your folks been there since the beginning of time and you can't find water in your neighborhood? That's because the generation after generation after generation after generation, generation had got so dependent on the British, the French, and all these other groups, right, for their subjects, for their living, that they forgot how to hunt. So the fact, life ain't nothing but hunting. You got a lot of deer and food out there. You can't go out and go kill it anymore. You used to go kill it. Take care of your food. Can't do it no more because you know what? They build these big high-rise structures, right? These big cities. And they get you into these big cities. And then they just, you know, take it all away. And then you ain't got nothing. You walk around a city, a filthy city like a zombie. Because you forgot how to hunt. Same thing happened here in America. I tell y'all folks that like right that like right here now, down in Louisiana. I remember all, all the young folks left, left the farm. They want to go to New Orleans. They want to go to Chicago, Memphis, some of these big cities. They left all that good land in the farm where they had good living, good food every day. Because somebody painted a picture that life was much bigger than just this farm. You know what life is about? Life is about having some food in your belly. Having a good family around you, that's what life is about. Life ain't about having all these debt cars and all this old all this material thing these folks get you locked into, and then they then they say you in debt. You in debt to me. We gave we we all are a big social experiment, not just for the pharmaceutical factories, but for all these people who create this so-called economy thing that we've all bought into because we think it brings us 
uh, a softer side of life. It brings us the conveniences of life. No, it brings us debt. All this is debt. Like I tell y'all, the pharmaceutical companies, and like everything else folks do, they create the problem, and then they sell you the cure. Ain't that something? I like these debt collection companies. I like it. They give you a credit card, and you run that credit card up, now you're in debt, and then they come back to you in debt consolidation and say, hey, we can help you resolve that. <laughs> they try to sell you the cure for it. What's going on? We have bought into these system of convenience. But my main thing that I want to talk about here tonight, I know I get all off track, is just that I look at Africa and I look at black folks and and I remember that story during Thanksgiving, how he said they outbreed them. We can outbreed them. And in 10 years, they outbreeded the racism in Quebec. And they created their own. <laughs> if you don't speak French, we ain't talking to you. <laughs> but this is the thing here in life is sad. When I look at Africa, it's really sad. Like I told you, pharmaceutical companies, which is the biggest. And now, I wouldn't say pharmaceutical companies, I would say like China now. China is moving in. China want a piece of Africa, on a piece of Africa, not want a piece of action now, just per se. Because they're a big superpower coming up. Well, they're already up. They ain't coming up. They're already up. Now they're trying to snag a piece of Africa now. And they're coming in to some of these crooked politicians and making these promises. And you can't, I'm, you know, this is just my opinion, not the facts. You can't trust nothing them Chinese say. Well, I guess you can't trust nothing nobody's, <laughs> nobody's say. But them Chinese, Chinese all about Chinese. And ain't nothing wrong with that. Hey, an organism, an organism want to survive. Want to survive. An organism want to survive. We all organism. So I'm not saying what China doing is wrong because a whole lot of people didn't did to Africa a whole lot worse before China ever came along. And if China come along and offer you a deal that's better than what you got or somebody else offered you, then folks going to take it. And when they get done with you, they're going to throw you aside just like everybody else did. Africa has to stop being the guinea pig for these pharmaceutical companies. Has to stop being the guinea pig for all these people who want to come in and take all the natural resources. But that would never happen. Because like old man told me one time, he said, boy, you ain't got no fence in your gloves. How can you fight back? Sad thing, people want to, you know, sad thing that, that, uh, I'll sit back and I'll take a look at to be serious with y'all here for a minute. I look at people say that, like you see these people riding in the streets, you know, for change and all that kind of, well, I don't know what they're riding. I know what they're riding for, but this ain't time for it. But we've had revolutions because of people won't change. People get tired of people on their neck. People won't change. See, it's okay for a certain group of people to fight back because they won't change. But when a, a, another group fight back, then, you know, it's bad for them to fight back. Why they fight back? They should be happy. You know, I'm just going to keep it like that. But that's Africa. 
Africa is a place where people look at and they say, why do they want to fight back? Why do they need independence? Why ain't they happy? Why they, why they, why they? And they don't understand all the other dynamics that has gone in to make people the way they are. To make African cities so filthy. To make the people so downtrodden. A lot of outside forces that went into Africa. And like I said, I used to think very highly of the Gates Foundation, Foundation, but I guess Bill Gates figured he can make more money not in computers, but off the backs of people. Now, I don't know what he's doing, right or wrong. I'm not going to comment on that. Y'all go look at research for yourself. It's just not Bill Gates. It's just not Bill Gates. All this stuff for money. Ain't that stuff money. Something that somebody print. Just just numbers. That's all it is. I'm going to give this group of people more numbers than I'm going to give this group of people. <laughs> and life is just so simple. Life is all about hunting every day. When I get up and go to work in the morning, I'm going hunting. I'm going hunting for some for some for, for some dollars to put away where I can buy me some food. If I'm in an area that has a whole lot of natural resources stuff that I can eat, I don't need money. I don't need I just need to learn how to fish. I need to learn how to hunt. I need to learn how to find water. Stuff that Africans have been doing for all their life, but we get satisfied. They say technology, you can't stop technology. Maduro, you can't stop technology. I know you can't stop technology once it gets going. I definitely understand that. But technology can be controlled. And you got you, you just got to figure out which side of that control you're going to be on. But right now, it's not about technology right now. Right now, it's about people. It's about controlling people. Controlling the numbers of people. It's about profit. It's about bottom line. Let me tell y'all something right now. They got computers that's so smart today that you can put in every characteristic of any virus or any symptom or anything, and they can tell you a cure. It's how smart computers they got. So they have technology here. They want to tell people that it takes a year, two years. We got to do these pharmaceutical trials. That's BS. They already have the cure. And we have supercomputers today that you put in all the information, the, excuse me, the variables, and it'll kick you out of cure. We are that far advanced. Let me tell you something. On the highway, I watch another show, an English show called The Sheriffs Are Coming. And on here, it, no, no, not, no not, not, not the sheriffs. It's, uh, it's, it's one English show about, it's almost like Highway Patrol. But it was showing about how they control all, they, they see everything that goes on on their highways. They CCTV. They see everything that goes on their highway. But see, they can't interfere. If they see somebody getting robbed, on their camera on that highway, they can't interfere. Somebody got to call it in. They, in other words, they see the crime before it happens, but they can't call it in. You see, we living in strange times today. It's all about population 
control and money. Look, I'm going to get on out of here now and talk to nothing. Now, I may be getting myself in trouble. I may hear a knock on my door from the CIA, but I don't think nobody think that I'm that important. <laughs> hey, look here. Like I tell y'all always, support your local cigar spot. Hey, we get an opportunity, man, pick up some of these, so these Southern Classic. Okay? I'm quite sure E. Lloyd, man, he appreciate it. He's a good guy. And check out his other line of cigars. So the Cabano and the Cubay and a few more of them. Good sticks here. Support your local cigar spot always. Go online to your CI and host, you know, build up a union door. That's fine, too. But first, get your money to your local cigar spot because that's where we all come together and we all be friendly. We Instead of being on the Internet, talking to each other on the Internet, have no face. You ain't got no face on the Internet. I don't care if you put your picture, but you ain't got no face. Okay? Always be social local cigar spot. And like I tell y'all all the time in closing, y'all take care of everybody out there. But more importantly, y'all take care of y'all self first. All right now.